Well, last week we talked about friendship with Jesus and friendship with each other. We said unity in Christ uh, means that we're united together as one, unity within the body, because it's not about us, amen? It's about those who have not heard, those who have no hope apart from Christ. And so Jamie shared this past Wednesday about the call to community, and he shared the Greek word ecclesia, which means an assembly, or the called out ones, it means the church, because the church isn't a building, it's a people, amen? Amen. It's not a place, and so this morning I want to talk about another Greek word, koinonia. It may be familiar to some of you, but it means fellowship, it means communion with God and with one another. See, Jesus' primary invitation is simply, follow me. But that means stop what you're doing. That means listen to what I say. Watch what I do and do likewise. Follow me. Jesus gives us marching orders. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. Follow. Allow my spirit to live inside you. Be changed from within. And sometimes, in fact, most times, God's plans look different than we think, amen? God's idea of what our life should look like or will look like is different than ours. So the question then becomes, who knows better, him or us? Who's in charge, him or us? See, it's easy when things go the way we think they should go, when everything goes according to our plan. But when we hit that crossroads, when God's beginning to do something that we didn't anticipate or that makes us uncomfortable, we say, God, I'm going to follow you with these things here. I'm going I'm to obey you with these areas here. But this right here, I'm all set. I got this, Lord. I don't need you here. C.S. Lewis shared this illustration in Mere Christianity. He said, imagine that you are a living house and God comes in to rebuild that house. And so at first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains just right. He's stopping the leaky roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. You knew he had to deal with the addiction. You knew he had to deal with the anger. You knew he had to deal with the lying. You knew he had to deal with some of those things, and so you're ready, you're prepared. And then Lewis writes, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to live in it himself. See, Jesus says, follow me and you'll change. A lot of times the church tells people, get it all right, and then you can come be part of us. And Jesus says, be part of me, and as a result, you'll change. My presence will change you. But he also says this. You'll have a new mission. You'll have a new purpose. 
I will make you fishers of men. See, Jesus invites us to follow first, and that life change comes as a result of union with him, and that life change, that that joy, that hope gives our lives meaning and purpose. And Jesus doesn't expect, the church doesn't expect us to have it all figured out. But here's the reality. Some people aren't even playing the game. Some people are just spectators. See, they know the rules and they love to tell everybody outside to play. They love to sit on the sidelines and shout when people get it wrong. Telling people how they break the rules but they're comfortable on the sidelines. They're not actually playing themselves. Or sometimes people just separate themselves from, from the world. Everybody they know thinks like them and votes like them and, and is like them because it's non-threatening and it's comfortable. Sometimes it's because the enemy has convinced people that they're not really Christians. That's a strategy from the beginning, by the way. He did it with Jesus, and he does it with us, is to, to get us to doubt our very identity. Are you really a Christian? I mean, look at those other Christians. They're so much better than you. See, it doesn't matter what causes you to shrink back. It doesn't matter what puts you on the sidelines. It doesn't matter if it's grievous sin, or, or if it's entertainment, or if it's distraction, or if it's the enemy's lies. It doesn't matter. All he cares is that you're on the sidelines. The enemy loves nothing more than Christians in name only who just stand around, memorize things, tell everybody else how to live, and they they don't have any change in their heart. There's a quote by John Piper I read recently. He said, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon." And this power comes as we follow Christ, as we read his word, as we endeavor together to allow the spirit of God to make us more like Jesus. See, there's so much to distract us, and we become slaves to our own desire to be entertained, and we've convinced ourselves that this is okay. We're just in this, in this time that there are so many distractions. My daughter is 10 years old, and yesterday I'm doing a memorial service, and she texts me and she says, Dad, the internet's down. And so I said, well, I'm at the church. And she goes, well, you got to get somebody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You'll survive for an hour without the internet. See, the Bible talks about lukewarm, and lukewarm is not trying and failing. Lukewarm is not playing the game. Lukewarm is sitting on the sidelines, and Jesus talks about that. See, following Christ is never solitary. We are not called to be spiritual apart from others. Lord, give me patience. I mean, even if you're alone, patience is tough because you've got to deal with you, Right? But we're not meant to live this out in isolation. So right now, we continue to see here at the church God working in incredible ways. People are getting baptized. People are getting saved, submitting their lives, filled with the Spirit. And we talk as the pastors about how God is stretching us. All of us, no matter how good things are, we are in a a period where we're growing 
We're, we're, I, I preach all the time. My theme with, with the Teen Challenge guys was always this growth versus comfort. If you're growing, you're not comfortable. And if you're comfortable, you're not growing. And the Christian life is supposed to be one of growth. More him, less me. But oftentimes we seek out comfort. Which would we rather have? Which would God rather have for us? Which is better ultimately for us? See, the, the benefit of having followed Jesus for a little while is even when you get to that place, you're like, Lord, I don't even know what you're doing here. Like, this, this looks crazy to me. But, but because you say so, Jesus, those fishermen who were told, hey, throw down the nets, they could have been like, we've been fishing our whole lives. We know what we're doing. But because you say so, Jesus, I will. This doesn't look the way I think it should look. I think I know a little better, but you know what, God? I've learned enough to trust you. And in those moments, in those times, you begin to see, Lord, your plans are so much better than my plans. So last week, we talked about being centered on the word, submitted to the spirit, and connected to the community. Center our lives in the word of God, submit ourselves to the spirit of God, and connect to the community. Commit to the community. Be part of what's happening. These are signs of a healthy church. And we know that God's at work. So when I look at the next steps for us, when the leaders pray, when I look at what it means to be a disciple, disciples always make more disciples. The title of the message this morning is Life Together on Mission. It's not an either or. It's a both end. It's supposed to be a perpetual cycle of disciples making disciples. And so we come here on Sundays and we hear a word and we worship the Lord. Maybe we come here in a midweek. Maybe we come to prayer time and God meets us and he works in our lives and we feel his presence and power. And then what? And then what? Is it just all about us? Are we just consumers? Lord, deliver me, heal me, fill me, work in my life. Fine, no problem. But then what? See, it's great that we're doing those things. Those things help us grow and mature. But toward what end? Why are we we to be mature disciples of Jesus? See, when I look at Jesus and his followers, two things in particular stand out to me. Being a disciple means being part of a church community. It also means living life on mission. When I look at the disciples, they lived life together. They had authentic relationships. They had real community, which means it was messy. If you look at the New Testament, most of the time it was written to address problems in the church. It's messy. It's real life. But they were committed to the process. But they didn't just live life together. It wasn't just about them. They lived life on mission. So that's what we're going to look, look at this morning, living on mission together. See, Jesus makes clear, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? Those that obey me. Those who are my followers. Those who are my disciples. Those who allow the Holy Spirit of God inside them to reach the lost. I read this statement by a pastor, I think, beautifully describes the church of Christ. He said, there's nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. 
It comforts the grieving and it heals the broken within the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. Still to this day, the potential of the local church is more than I can grasp. No other organization on earth is like it. Nothing comes even close. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 4 and 5, Just as each of us have one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. Notice that last part, verse 5. Each member belongs to the others. The message version says it this way. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body. That means we have unique giftings and abilities. You know what those things are given to us for? To build this church. If you're a Christian, your gift is not for you. Your gift is never for you. Your gift is for others. So do you want to find meaning and function in your life? You will find it within the context of a community. Being a part of a church, part of his body, we're all essential for his work. If you're a Christian, you're in full-time ministry. 24-7, 365. If you're a Christian, you are a full-time minister. That's why I believe we can't really enjoy life unless we enjoy it together as a church. Unless we are a part, we are doing our part of the local church. God's plan to reach the lost. See, we tend to say, all I need is God, and that's true, but it's only half true. See, if I said, what's the first crisis in the Bible? We'd say, sin, Adam sinned. But that's not the first crisis in the Bible. The first crisis in the Bible Even though man had fellowship with God, the Bible says it is not good for man to be alone. God exists in relationship. He created us for relationship. And so we had spiritual needs. Adam had spiritual needs and God was there. But there was also relational needs. In fact, 1 John 4.21 says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's an expression, it's an outflow of an authentic love for Christ. The message version translates it this way. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. So we've been looking at the word of God, the spirit of God, community, the past few weeks and how that's a central part of our lives. And now I want to focus on these two essential components. Living together, and we're good at that. We love that. We gather together, but we're also called to live on mission, to live with a purpose. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 5, and there's three things I want to draw out of the text. I want to look at what Jesus did for us. I want to look at what we are to do as a result And then I want to look at how we are to do it. What did Jesus do for us? What are we to do as a result? And how are we to do it? Galatians 5 in our community group, we're memorizing Galatians 5.1. One of my favorite verses of scripture. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And in seminary and in the Bible studies we've been talking about, if it says therefore, it's there for a reason. It means there's going to be a thought, and then there's going to be that word. When you see but or therefore, it means now there's going to be an application. There's going to be an outflow. So in other words, because of this, do this. 
For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, the very thing you've wanted your whole life was freedom and you've been set free, so now what are you going to do? Put yourselves back in jail? Because we do. Because it's what we know, because it's comfortable, because the enemies convince us we deserve it. For a host of reasons, Christ sets us free and we find ourselves right back in the mess. Over and over again. So Paul says, stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, the question is not whether we're slaves. The question is what we're slaves to. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. That's being a slave to your flesh, to yourself, or you can be a slave to Jesus. That's why Paul seems to almost gloat in the fact that, hey, I'm Paul. I'm a slave for Jesus Christ, because he knows the alternative is to be a slave to sin. So Paul says, look, Paul, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Paul's saying, look, if you want to fall back into religion, if you want to make it about do's and don'ts only, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if you want to make it about all those rules, which we know from last week are good, the law is good and perfect, Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill. So Paul's going, if you want to make it about that, if you want to hold everybody else to that standard of perfection that you yourself can't do, you make sure that you're perfect then. I testify that every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law and you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. In other words, it's not just about the external stuff. It's not about tradition for the sake of tradition. They, count, they, they neither count for anything but only faith working through love. In other words, an active faith will produce love, an authentic Faith will produce love. Our lives and ministries are to be an overflow of an experience with Jesus Christ. I don't have anything to give you. I don't have any, anything of any real value. My opinions don't matter. My experience doesn't even matter unless it points you to Jesus Christ. The power is his word and his spirit. And Paul says this, verse 7, You are running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. Saying, what happened? You understood this intellectually. You were starting to live it out. What, what distracted you? What sin crept back into your life? What phone calls were you taking that you shouldn't have taken? What people were you hanging out with that you shouldn't have been hanging out with? What did you allow in that's taking your focus off of Jesus? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This interference. Because you know, I heard it said once, if you want to run away from God, the devil will always provide the transportation. Right? See, what happened? This isn't from God. You know the truth. You are living the truth. What, what came in? What distracted you? And, it's, and then he says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Here's a confession, right? I'm always making confessions here. I watch movies sometimes, and my wife will walk in and be like, hey, that language, what's up with that language? 
That's only words, honey. You can't watch anything as the word. I don't know. Is that true? Is that? I have a friend that says, I only watch things my kids can't watch. It's the little stuff. We become desensitized. We allow more and more and more and until we look just like the world. We don't understand why our thoughts and, you know, we, don't, we haven't guarded our heart against anything. We've allowed it all to come in. We haven't used in any discernment. And I'm not talking about looking at everybody else and be like, that, you see that, brother? You see the show? No, no, no. We ought to be more graceful toward others and we want to be a little more, little more authentic, a little more truth-focused than ourselves, than our own sin. Look at me. Look at my heart, my life. Paul's saying, I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view and the one who will trouble, who's troubling you will bear the penalty. Paul's saying, look, you need to get off track. I have confidence that the Lord working in you, he's going to continue to work. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? If that, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. If it's just about religion, what's the cross for? If we can just do it all without Jesus, what's the cross for? People say to me, Pastor Brian, there's evil in the world. You know, what's God doing about evil? I'm saying, look at the cross. See, Pastor Brian, I pray, and I don't know if God answers prayers. Look at the cross. Every prayer was fulfilled on the cross. God's answer to evil is his son hanging on a tree. That's his answer to evil. Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I wish those who are trying to twist this and make it about the law. I wish they'd be destroyed. If you ask a non-Christian to describe to you a Christian, more often than not, you know what they're going to describe to you? A Pharisee. They're going to give you a list of all these things that don't reflect Jesus, but that reflect the Pharisees. Because that's been their experience with Christians. Instead of trying to defend that or fight against that, how about if we just live well? Paul says, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Here's, here's the key verse. Here's the linchpin. Here's the instruction. Here's where he's going to bring it all together. For you were called to freedom. You were given freedom in Christ. You were set free. And then he says this. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's saying, yeah, you were called to freedom. Yeah, you were set free. And yes, that's for you, only for a moment. And you know who else it's for? All those who are not free. And so through freedom, the expression of that freedom, if that freedom is authentic, serve one another in love. We don't have to go to the Greek. We don't need a commentary. You don't have to say, Pastor Brian, what does that mean? This is what we ought to do. This is the whole matter, church. We were set free from sin and death and from self, so we can serve others. It can't be clearer than that. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gives you the alternative. But in fact, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about the world. We can see that. He's saying, all right, if you want to use your freedom to indulge the flesh, and you want to be around people who are using their freedom to indulge the flesh, you know what's going to happen? You're going to bite, and you're going to devour each other, and it's going to lead to death. You're going to be destroyed. 
You're not going to have a testimony. The church isn't going to have any power. People are going to look and say the church is just like the world. They're not united. In fact, life together is not life together unless you're loving your neighbor as yourself, unless you're serving one another. Either you're serving your neighbor or you're still living for you. So that's what we are to do. We saw what Christ did, what we had to do, and now here's, we had to, here's how we are to do it. And this is encouraging because if you're like, you know, Pastor Brian, I understand the freedom of Christ. I've embraced that. I've trusted in him. And, and, and the what we are to do, I don't know that, you know, I'm struggling with that. Good. Good, because now I'm going to explain how to do that. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the very things you want to do. We talked about that last week. So Paul's saying the reality is the flesh isn't converted. The reality is there's always going to be this tension. And you can either submit to the spirit or submit to the flesh. Now, I don't believe in, in full sanctification. I don't think we can be perfect. But just hear me out for a minute. If the reality exists that in a moment... You can flee temptation. Then in a moment, you could submit yourself not to the flesh, but to the spirit. Then you could do that again and again. Now, I'm not saying that we're to be perfect. But I'm saying that some of us don't even try. Some of us just go, well, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall. And so, you know, I mean, I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to play the game. I'm just going to sit in the sidelines. And then people are like, well, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. And I go, actually, the Bible says right here, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus said that. I don't know. What does he mean? means that that's the goal. <laughs> means that with the Spirit empowering us, that's what we are to strive towards. And yes, we're going to fail. And yes, we're going to fall. But we don't give up. That's why Paul says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, whose grace and mercy are new every morning. And like Piper said, it's not just pardon from sin, it's power to not sin. And some of us, we just don't even try. And we look at other people and it makes us feel better. Well, you know, he's doing the same thing. You know, we always, we always want to, you know, compare ourselves to people not doing as good. We never look at people doing spiritually better than us or in, and not in a, in a practical way. Maybe we'll allow that to make us feel bad. We always look at people, you know, not doing as good and we, make, us, make us feel better that like an excuse. Paul says, for the desires of the flesh are against the, uh, are against the spirit. If you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. This doesn't just describe the world, this describes the church. I said a few weeks ago when I was preaching, in John 17, when Jesus is praying, he's praying that they be one. Not that they agree 100%. Not that they're fully united at everything. But Jesus is going, I pray that the church would be one so that it would be a testimony. So the world would come to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, sent from God. But we're too busy fighting. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and like these things, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit. 
This is the litmus test for Christianity. Forget, you know, we have all these other things, right? If you want to be a mature disciple in Christ, this is what it looks like. It's hanging in my office. It's not just a pretty sign. It's a reminder to go, I'm not there, I'm not there, I'm not there. But I want to be there, but I want to be there. But Christ is, is working in me. So ask yourself, are you more loving, joyful, peaceful? Are you more patient? Are you more kind? What happened to kindness? Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. I don't know. I know a lot of Christians, and not, gentle is not a word I would use. I mean, before I was a Christian, sometimes people would be talking to me, and I'd be like, I don't even know what you're saying, but you just seem angry to me. I mean, it should break our heart that people are separate from God. Sometimes people will share the gospel, they'll, they'll tell you, and if you don't agree, if you don't respond, if, if you don't, you know, exactly how they want, it's almost like they're happy that you're going to hell. It's like, ee. You ever have, I had a guy, a friend of mine, he used to drive his bicycle in Lynn, Mass., and he had a big sign that said, turn or burn. And I'd say, is that, you know, and he'd be like, well, it's true. Okay, I mean, is it effective though? I don't know. Paul said something about all things to all people that I might win some. I don't, I don't know. He says this, verse 25. I'm sorry, verse 24. All those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I've used this illustration before. It reminds me when I was a little kid, I was a Cub Scout, and me and my buddy, we had to hold the flag. And everybody was supposed to follow us. Like we were like seven, eight years old. And we're, holding the, and we're all over the place. I mean, we, we, I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. We're looking back. Nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody's all over the place. There was nobody to keep in step with. There was nobody to guide us. Sometimes in the church, that's what we do. We think keeping step with the Spirit is looking at what our neighbors do. And every, everybody's a mess instead of looking at Jesus. Keeping step with the Spirit means we have to make adjustments. It means we have to look at things and say, you know, I'm going to make some changes here. I'm going to adjust accordingly. Not to other Christians, not to, but to the word of God, to the spirit of God, to the person of Christ. He's who I follow. Keep in step with the spirit. And then he says this, and he has to say this. We have to receive this. Verse 26. Then he says this, all of a sudden it seems. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Why does he say that? Because Paul knows that as we start to get it right, we want everybody to know that we got it right. See the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Somebody the other day was telling me, I think I'm pretty humble. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't, it's not how that works. No. Best at being humble. Paul's like, look, when you when you start to get it right, don't let everybody know. Like y- your life will be a testimony. You don't have to everybody. Oh, you should see what God's doing in my life this week. I mean, the sp- you know, like, come on. Paul goes on to talk about bearing one another's burdens. Yes, he sets us free when we accept his free gift, when we put our trust in him. But not so we can indulge ourselves. Not as an excuse to live how we want. It's freedom to live the way he wants us to live. That's what we've been set free towards. We know what we've been set free from. 
but he set us free towards something, toward living for him, that our lives would bring God glory, that they would be a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ to set even the biggest knuckleheads free. That's me. I mean, some of you too, for sure, but especially Jamie. So here's what loving others looks like, because we complicate it. We know the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. We understand that. This is what Martin Luther King said about that teaching. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked is, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? And the Samaritan reversed the question and said, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So you get it wrong. How's this going to affect me? How's this going to line up with what I got going on? There's a reason Jesus uses the religious folks as the example, the priest and those who are the, the right class, the priestly class. And they said, I don't know if this is going to quite work with my schedule. Jesus ends by telling us, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. It's not just a story. It's, it's not just an illustration and it ends. It's not just something to memorize and tell everybody about. I mean, we're really good at that as Christians. It's something to do. It's something to live out. Mother Teresa said this, if you can't do great things, do little things with great love. If you can't do them with great love, do them with a little bit of love. And if you can't do them with a little bit of love, do them anyway. Love grows when you serve. Willie and Christina, they're the volunteer coordinators, and every week it seems like we have people that say, hey, I want to get more involved. Praise God. But you know, it's not about, well, you know, what's my talent? What's my ability? You know, where can... No, it's about going, you know, I just want to get more plugged in. And I get, you know, we have busy seasons of life and things going on. But if you've had a busy decade, you're just managing your time. You're just not good at prioritizing. And so we can't all do it. We can't all do everything, but we can all do a little something. There's a lot of people connected to this church. And so love grows when you serve, when you begin. You know, nothing gets you outside of your situation, your circumstance, your struggle, than when you begin to serve somebody else and God uses you and you begin to see. I know how many times in my life, I, you know, I don't want to show up to this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to serve at this. I'm in my own funk and I'm doing with my own stuff and I'll show up anyway, even reluctantly, but I'll show up anyway and I'll begin to serve. And at the end, God uses you. You're meeting with people. You're praying with people. And it's like, what was it I was upset about anyway? I don't even remember anymore. You know, the, the situation in Haiti, I keep praying for that. Those missionaries. And I'm like, Lord, send the Navy SEALs. Let's get like, you know, like, I'm, that's my prayer. And I read, they were interviewing the group. And they said, this is an opportunity for our brothers and sisters to practice what our Lord said about loving our neighbor. Man. Serving. Loving. It doesn't look like what we think it should look like. It involves giving up our rights. 
See, if you're a Christian, you've been called to the greatest adventure, the greatest mission. God wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to use us to change not just lives. There's a lot of good jobs that will change lives, but to change eternities. God wants to use you to change the world. I read this quote, who among you have called to save souls? Would you lower your position to that of a king or a general? David Livingston said this, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how is the commission by a heavenly king considered a sacrifice? Sometimes we don't share our faith because we're afraid. What if, what if, what if? 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15, this is like the go-to verse for apologetics. Apologetics just means the defense of the faith. This is what Peter says. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And this is a perfect example where you don't just stop with that, where context is everything. Don't let that be like your your life verse. Because if you keep reading, uh, Peter says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Don't be afraid. And then he says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. As an alternative to your fear, in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. You know, you, you see, there's all these like deconversion stories, and it's funny how like the world celebrates. If somebody's a Christian and they, they walk away from their faith, it's like a celebration. Not the thousands and millions of people that have come into faith, we don't celebrate that. But you ever read a deconversion story and it's all information? It's all like cold. It's like, well, I thought this and I read this and I used to believe this and, and then now I, you know, I believe this. And it's always like this idea that they've evolved toward some enlightened perspective, which if there is no God, then it's meaningless. But it never reads as though they fell out of love with somebody. And I always ask myself, were you ever really in love with Jesus? I mean, I know you knew about him, but did you ever know him? Paul, Peter's saying that the best apologetic, where it has to begin, in your heart. And I love that word, revere. In your heart. Is Christ the Lord? Does your life magnify and testify to the glory of God? And always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. But see, what Peter is saying is, it's not a question of if somebody asks you, it's a question of when. Because if you revere Christ in your heart, if you're living for Jesus, it's a matter of time. And someone's going to be like, I don't know if you don't have the news. I don't know if you've got your eyes closed. But things are a mess. It's ugly out there. What is it? Why you got this peace or this joy? Like, what's up with you? And here, you don't have to be a theologian to have a story about Jesus. Let me tell you about my story. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. Let me tell you about my Jesus. That's the best apologetic. See, arguments aren't going to win souls. God working through the power of your testimony, I was once blind, but now I see. 
The doctor said I should be dead, but here I am. I found myself, I found myself broken and desperate in a rehab in Brockton, and now I'm preaching the gospel. With gentleness and respect. This is where teaching comes in, too. We have to be in a process of being taught. People are like, well, I don't share my faith because I'm afraid people want to ask me answers to questions. And I'm like, well, you want to find the answers to the questions? Nah, I'm watching a Netflix thing. I got Okay. See, every one of us has a testimony. And here's, this is a Pastor Brian original, all right? Ready? You can quote me on this. It's not just about sharing information. It's about people seeing the transformation. Hello? It's about people looking at your life and going, I don't know what you think or believe. I don't understand that, but I know there's something different about you. I can see. I mean, I remember Jamie talking and be like, I didn't even know. I thought it was Brian's ways in this program. For t-. I'm like, he, he, was, he used to tell his uh, friends, he'd be like, listen, he's been away for a year. He's, I don't know what's happened when he comes back. He's probably going to be crazy. And he thought it was crazy. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still crazy. But he saw me and he said, it was just something about you that was different, and I wanted it. I wanted it. And that's what a disciple who makes disciples is. And now I don't go, yeah, isn't that great? I'm different. And then stop. No, I tell everybody else so they can become different because it's not about me, and it's not about Jamie, and it's not about you. It's about them. That's why the church exists. Peter's assuming people will ask you what is different. In his book, The Coming Revival, Bill Bright said this, only 2% of believers in America regularly share their faith in Christ with others. 95% of Christians have never won a single soul to Christ. And 80% of Christians don't even try to witness. This is heartbreaking to me. I don't know how we think We're going to get to heaven and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, if we neglected the very task that Jesus gave us. Oh, it's so good that you allowed this, you put your trust in Christ and you allowed the sin and your life to be lifted, and then that was it. I'm done. Look at me. I'm a trophy. Put me on the shelf. And somehow we've convinced ourselves that, that this is what the church should be. Jesus said, go and make disciples. That's the one thing. That is the only reason the church exists. Imagine a group of firefighters polishing their fire engine outside of a burning building. They're so consumed with what they're doing that they're oblivious that there are people trapped on a top floor window. Now, there's nothing wrong with cleaning your fire engine. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a nice, beautiful fire engine, but it's for something. And you don't polish it while people are burning. And as ridiculous as that seems, that any firefighter would do such a thing, that is a picture of the contemporary church. We are polishing the engines of worship and of prayer and of praise, but we are neglecting the sober task God has given us to go and reach the lost. It is not an either or, it is a both and. And it's not just my job or Jamie's job or Sam's job, it's all of our responsibility. 
You know that 19 out of 20 people become Christians before age 24? Parents, are we ministering to our kids? See, when I preach, this isn't like Pastor Brian's preaching this to us. This is like the Lord is preaching to all of us because this stuff hurts me. You think I read this and go, I got it all figured out. I'm going to, no. The only, I use myself as an example of where I fall short. But this hope, see, there's an urgency to carrying out the Great Commission because I don't know about you, but we're getting older. Hello? I made fun of my father-in-law, Gary Wire. I don't know if he's here. He's always my go-to. I'm like, some of us, you see there, he said, some of us are getting older real quick. <laughs> but the urgency to reach the next generation is because we're not going to be here forever. And we wonder why the church is in decline, and it's because our generation, my generation, we live a marginal faith. And we think that because we tell our kids things that, and we're not living it out, that somehow that's going to translate. And it's not. And they're walking away because they don't see us living it out. And I'm not saying we're going to be perfect. In fact, we're not. And there's never a place you're going to feel more imperfect in your marriage or parenting. But some of us have just stopped trying. We're too busy doing other stuff. You know what the saddest scripture is to me? This is one of the saddest scriptures in all the Bible. Judges 2.10. When one generation passed away, another grew up and didn't know the Lord. It breaks my heart. That should break your heart. You shouldn't just come to church, allow God to change you, and then be done with it. He's changing you so that he can use you to change others. That is how it works. And we need each other, and we need his word, and we need his spirit, but we got to play the game. Stop being a spectator. People say, oh, it's not about numbers. It is about numbers. It absolutely is about numbers because those numbers are souls. We want more and more people to come, but we don't want to take people from other churches. We don't want, you know, we want people who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. We want people who have been holding things back to surrender those things to Jesus. You cannot have a church without the Great Commission. I don't even know how that's a thing. The Bonner Research Group, which is a Christian organization, found that among identified American adults who said they were born again, 75% of them couldn't explain what the Great Commission is. How, how, how is that? See, our goal here is to be a Great Commission church. We want to we wanna be a place, we, we've said before, we want people to feel loved enough to stay, but challenged enough to grow. We want our lives to be changed so that we could be used of God. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them. And he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. How do we miss that? How do we miss that? The Greek word... The Greek, Greek verb go is, is not a command, it's a present participle. Literal, the literal translation would be 
as you're going. In other words, Jesus is saying, this isn't even a go out of your way to do this. This is a, as you're going to work and as you're you know, going to the gym and as you're doing whatever it is you're doing, as somebody cuts you off, live in such a way that you're a testimony to the grace of God, to the power of God. As you go, make disciples. While you are going, make disciples. This isn't just my mission. This isn't just a a catchphrase. This is what Jesus gave us to do. This is the task of the church. Yes, we're to live together. But we have to live life on mission. I like to say the Great Commission is not a suggestion. It's not the great suggestion. It's not just an option. The word commission defined as an instruction, a command, or a duty given. It's an authorization. Are we doing all we can to make sure people get the message? Do we talk to people about Jesus? Do we invite people to church? Do we live lives that joyfully appeal to others? And I don't mean divorced from reality. I don't just mean we smile all the time, everything's perfect. No. But do we have a peace and joy? Can we say it is well with my soul when everything around me is falling apart? Because everybody says it's well with my soul when things are going the way we think they should. See, in verse 16 it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. After seeing Christ risen, they still doubted. You know what? He was still talking to them. It's okay if you have doubts. I understand you have doubts. I understand that though you've seen God do miraculous things in your life, that things can take you off track, that that the enemy can come in, that doubts can arise. And so maybe you're here and you've seen the risen Lord. You've seen miracles, but something's robbed you of your faith, faith and you stand before Jesus and you doubt. And that's okay. He still tells you, go. Go and make disciples and your 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 faith will be strengthened. As you do. Because here's the good news. Ready? Power doesn't come from you. It's not about your power. He doesn't say go because now you, you, know, you have unique abilities. He'll gift us. But he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority to reach all nations. All things of God must be taught. And Christ says he is always with us. Always with us. Jesus gave us the authority and the ability of all the gifts in Scripture. All the talking about God's power in our lives. All the references to the power of the Holy Spirit. One passage tells us why. The why. Acts 1 says it's the power for witnessing. But you shall receive power, the power of the Holy Spirit, You shall receive power to witness. Charles Stanley defined the church as this, believers in Jesus Christ who who join together, fulfilling their mission to make disciples. Not just believers in Jesus Christ who join together for good pumpkin bread and awesome worship, polish their fire engines and people, and then they say other churches and say, look at my fire engine, oh, that's nice, and how many people do you have on your, you know, we do. They go to a pastor's conference and the first thing, how big is your church? Like, really? That's what we're doing? That's that's the game? Jesus had 12 people in his church. Want to criticize that? (laughs) I don't even know. 
about how many people are being changed, how many lives you want to testify to God at work instead of using worldly metrics. There are churches gathering right now. There are 20,000, 30,000 people in the stadium. Praise God. God can use big, small. If there are 30,000 people in the community that are professing Jesus Christ, that community should be radically changed or something's wrong. I don't know what they're doing. 1 Corinthians 9, 14, if you are to preach the word, you must live by the word. Evangelize. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And some of us do whatever we can to avoid Samaria. Jesus went out of his way to encounter the people that needed him the most and we avoid those very people. You don't enlist in the military and think your journey's done, right? I graduated from boot camp. They trained me mentally, physically. I'm done. No, you train towards something. And ask the worship team to come up. See, we're called to be under the teachings of Christ. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Jesus says to make disciples teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. You teach not just by telling, but by modeling. See, the Great Commission is a process. Bring them in, train them up, and send them out. Church, I want to encourage you. We have an insurance from Christ. Don't worry, I will be with you to the end of the age. Don't be afraid, it's my power working in and through you. It's great that Christ has set us free. It's great that we've experienced God's power. It's great that God's at work in us. But now what? Now are we gonna jingle the keys to the cell? Hey look, somebody let me out, I'm free. Maybe if I get around to it, I'll unlock your cell too, but I've got a lot going on right now. No. A heart should break for those who don't know Jesus. A heart should break for those who are still in bondage. Instead, we criticize. Would you stand with me as we close? Lord, we thank you that your word encourages and it comforts, but it challenges and it convicts. Lord, we thank you that you've empowered us not just to fight the sin in our own lives, but to fight for those who are lost. Lord, we want to be a Great Commission church. God, would you meet us in this place? Don't let the enemy speak his lies into our lives, God. But let us believe and live out the truth of the gospel. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't, do not allow yourselves to be subject again to a yoke of slavery and use your freedom to serve others in love. To ask not the question of how is it going to affect us if I help, but how is it going to affect them if I don't. Have your way, Lord. And in through us, God. We want to be your church. 
vessels, your hands and feet. It's not about us. It's all about you, Jesus. In your name we pray.